Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Matthew Grant here. Well, summer has arrived in the Northern Hemisphere and holidays have begun. Whilst I've been playing around in boats, Robin Mertens has picked up the microphone this week to talk to an old friend of his, Neil Eckhart. Neil has been an early visionary in many areas of insurance and beyond, including seeing the potential for a shift to digital almost 20 years ago. He foresaw the demands from companies and society to manage the exposure to carbon, and Neil has backed his view of the world with capital, investing and running a number of businesses. So stand by for a fascinating exploration into the various stratas of innovation and entrepreneurship in the insurance and climate landscape from more than two decades and right up to present day with Neil's involvement in Incubex. And if you're wondering what else is going on in the world of insurance, technology and insurtech, or if you're building your own technology data or analytics company and want to be sure the world knows what you're up to, then email us hello at instech.co to find out more about what we offer through corporate membership. Finally, you'll hear Neil mention Piper Alpha in a few moments. That refers to the North Sea oil rig that exploded in 1988 with extensive loss of life and a significant escalation of costs for the insurance industry. If you want to learn more about that, I covered it in an article back in January 2019, which is available on LinkedIn, and we'll put a link in the episode notes, data disasters and career-limiting catastrophes. Now, over to Robin and Neil. I'm absolutely thrilled to have with me today an old friend, Neil Eckert, who's the chairman of Incubex. Neil, welcome. Thank you, Robin, and, and, and likewise. You and I first met back in 2000 when you were the chief exec at Brit, and you didn't uh, start out in the carrier side of things. I think you were early into insurance and, and into broking. What got you into insurance, and, and when did you go in? I went in in 1980. I'd, I'd left school. I got a holiday job with someone who happened to have a Lloyd's Breaking House and started life pushing a tea trolley around and did one renewal season. And I thought I was rather enjoying myself, so I decided not to go to university. And I've been, been stuck in the insurance stroke climate market ever since. Were you one of those whom, um, it, to put it nicely, that the lifestyle appealed back in the 80s? Was that one? Of, were you one of those? I just found I wasn't an academic. I, the idea of studying and taking exams, I just really loved going to work, being in a people environment and getting on with life. Yeah, that'll resonate with plenty. You were then, um, I mean, you did pick a bad place to uh, learn the trade because weren't you in Benfield's in the glory days? Yeah, so I joined Benfield in 19, September 1986. I was lucky to be part of the management buyout in 1988. And the company was just firing on all cylinders. It was growing incredibly rapidly. Piper Alpha happened four days after our management buyout. Our revenues went from about 4 million quid to 42 million quid in, in four years. So it was absolutely fantastic place, you know, right time, right place for me. Worked with some wonderful people. So Matthew Harding, Graham Chilton, Mike Reese, John Coleman. You know, it was just, it was just fantastic to be there. Yeah, they really were the megastars of the era. And yet, when I first met you, you weren't breaking at all. You'd gone into insurance and you were on the carrier side as, as uh, uh, Brit. What, what, what led you from Benfield's to Brit? What Benfield realised was that reinsurance is really substitute capital. And we knew corporate capital was coming to Lloyd's. So I was put onto the corporate finance side. Brit actually originally stood for Benfield and Ree Brothers Investment Trust. We decided to form a fund to invest in insurance companies and insurance tech. And it very quickly, it's an acronym, it became Brit. We raised 100 million quid in 1995. I was the founder CEO and met you in 2000. And I stayed at Brit for 10 
happy years. And yet you were always sort of uh, looking ahead at what the future of insurance looked like. And, and, and I mean, we, I don't know whether you were um, insightful enough or mad enough to take pity on Alex Letts and Robin Mertens coming through the drawer in in 2000. I remember we had a pitch deck, which was called E. Lloyd's, you know, the future of insurance in London or, or something. And Brit were one of the lead investors. What was the thinking behind that? Did you share the vision of a digital future or were you looking to kind of diversify a bit? Well, there were some clues in other sectors. There's this little thing called the Internet that was going on. And there were people that were starting to make enormous amounts of money. And during that time, it was incumbent upon most people to have a strategy to do with the Internet. And Alex and you walked in and it, I mean, it resonated with me. I, I've never understood why there are people pushing inky bits of paper around, rekeying, photocopying. It's just a strange thing. And so many other um, sectors and industries are paperless, digital, fantastic data flows and efficient. And the insurance back office is still a wonder to behold. So, yes, we, we all had the vision and we may have been 10, 15 years early, but um, I think it's all coming of age now. And sort of your business is a demonstration of that. I'm intrigued to get your views on why it is you think that the insurance industry is so slow uh, to pick on these things? Because I, I think you know, that the reason that you were kind enough to invest and others did too was that there was a, a subset of the world, as you say, that sort of understood and believed this was to be the vision. And yet the insurance industry itself was incredibly difficult to persuade and, to, and still at some sectors of it still are. What, what, what is it that you think makes the insurance industry so difficult to persuade of the benefits of a digital future? So one of the things is the construction of the contract. It, it's a it's a contract of indemnity. It's a it's a promise to pay. With other markets, they trade contracts for difference. You can standardise them. You can trade them. You can clear them. It's also industry practitioners basically running the bit the industry for the industry. Some of the most powerful people in the industry are probably around my age, and I think what I do see in life is the adoption of technology and paperless business is much faster and much easier for people who are about half my age than it is for the older generation. And we were dealing at the time with a generation of senior people who'd been brought up with slips, Lloyd Stamps and a Mont Blanc pen. So breaking that down. There is also an element of fear in some communities breaking about straight through processing and disintermediation. And I think disintermediation is something which, and the brokers are very powerful, They've done a fantastic job, particularly for their shareholders over time. So it was a combination of those factors, which means that if you go to the rest of the financial world, they've been trading electronically, high-frequency, algos, artificial intelligence for a while. Uh, but I do think that the evolution, and I'd say it's evolution, not revolution, is coming. Yes, yes, so do I. And um, I'm sorry from um, Brit's investment point of view, it didn't come a little bit earlier. And then you slightly surprised us all um, by leaving Brit. And the next thing I know about you, you've gone and helped found the Climate Exchange. I had no concept of how climate and carbon futures would 
in any way be um, as influential on the future as they are clearly are now. You know, there's a bit of a recurring theme here of you being ahead of your time. What was it about trading carbon, carbon futures uh, that you saw that um, people like me and others who, you know, I back myself a bit to be a trend spotter. I had, I had no idea. I'd never seen this. What, what, what did you see? One of my mentors in life was a man called Richard Sandor. And Sandor went off to the Rio Earth Summit in 1993 with John Kerry and Al Gore. And they saw some scientists saying climate change is for real. CO2 is greenhouse gas. And you better watch out. Rich was on the board of Brit. He was interested in trying to securitize insurance risk and bring insurance risk to capital markets. And he's a man that's constantly been 20 years ahead of his time. 2005 was the first year in recorded history that we went all the way through the hurricane alphabet. When I was a kid, it was always Andrew or Alicia or Betsy. It was A's, B's and C's and the C cooled down sort of after September. In 89, we had an H for Hugo. In 2005, we got to Wilmer and Rita at the back end of the alphabet. We actually went through to G in the second alphabet. And the penny was beginning to drop. That was not an anomaly. That was just terrifying. Richard contacted me and said, I'm going to start climate exchange. Will you help me? I'd done 10 years of Brit. It had gone from 100 million, and it was by that stage a 1.3 billion pound company. And I think 10 years is a good time to take a natural break. You know, a change is as good as a rest, new challenges. And I really did believe that the climate space was going to be absolutely huge. And so how long were you at the climate exchange? And, and then I think you, you sold it. What Tell us about that next leg of the journey. So we started the business. Um, it went public in 2005. We raised 30 million quid. We sold it five years later. Um, we had a 95% global market share of carbon trading. And the Intercontinental Exchange, ICE, which is the biggest sort of energy trader, it trades Brent, it trades gas, power. They turned up wanted to buy it. It was a good trade for us. Um, so we sold in 2010, and I was non-competitive for financial markets for a while. I'm going to ask you a question which you don't have to answer if you don't want to. Do you wish you still had it? Yeah, I think we sold it for about 600 million and I dread to think what it's worth today. But we, we felt really smart at the time, but the, but the clever guy there was the, um, was Jess Brecker, the chief executive of ICE. No, I, I think people will on balance say you were pretty smart. Uh, I think you, no, no one ever gets these timings of these things exactly right. So you were locked out for a while. Did you do anything exciting in that time? Well, I was interested in all things to do with climate and carbon. So we started a, a small-scale energy, renewable energy business called Aggregated Micropower. And we IPO'd that in 2014. Um, it was in the business of anything to do with renewables. And we sold that in 2019 to a private equity company. And then because you're now not, not locked out, you're free, I guess, to do anything, you know, that you want, um, you know, with climate or insurance or anything else. And then, you know, you and I haven't seen each other for a while, and, and you come across my radar again as chairman of Incubex, particularly, and we'll come into this in a minute, when you bought InsureWave. T- tell me about Incubex and, and, and what your plans for it are. So Incubex was another iteration of wanting to be a carbon trading platform. 
and several of the old team from Climate Exchange had stayed in touch with me. And in 2017-18, we decided to reform the rock band. And carbon markets are now, as you've observed, they're of huge scale. But it's not just about carbon now. It's about renewable energy credits. It's about low-carbon fuel standards, which are the credits that Tesla generate. It's about California carbon. It's about renewable fuels like ethanol. Um, there's lots of other exciting developments in the area. So we have a business in Europe. We have a business in Chicago, and that's been growing sort of wonderfully. So I'm I'm, I'm lucky to be involved with that. Mm, oh, I wonder whether it's um, luck or your ability to spot a trend. So then you come back into to my attention, and you will to lots of people in, in the Instec community, when you bought Insurewave um, from EY, uh, that clearly has a part in your thinking. What, 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 why do you buy that and what, what are your plans for it? So strategically, we thought that insurance is inextricably linked with climate change. You've just got to look at people's results, balance sheets, the incidents of hurricanes, wildfires, floods. So we wanted to form a climate risk division and get into the insurance market. EY were the owners of an asset. It was starting to get traction, had some wonderful customers. It's a very smart tech platform. It's about data management for large complex risk. And the asset was available and we, rather than start something from absolute ground zero, we wanted to get into that market. We will be looking to launch other types of products. I'm very interested in exchange-traded hurricane products, for example, which was the old IFEX. So, yeah, we have a climate risk division, and InsureWave is absolutely part of that. Are you able to expand a bit further on how you will tie insurance and uh, climate together? Are you seeking, for instance, to enable industry to burnish its climate sensitivity, its credentials, that enable it to kind of be more carbon neutral? I mean, are you going to tie those things together in some way? Yeah, so we also have a product we're launching called the Insurance Carbon Warehouse. So the majority of people that I come across, if you actually ask them a question, have you seen a carbon credit before, or do you know what a carbon credit looks like, what is the project that underlies the carbon credit, um, the answer usually is no. And then you ask them, do you know how to buy a carbon credit? Can you, where would you go to buy a ton of carbon without going to a consultancy? And we wanted to supply a retail solution to the insurance market. There's two aspects here. One is the insurance marketplace getting its own house in order and managing its own because insurance, it employs hundreds of thousands of people. And as a rule of thumb, the average carbon consumption for a company is about five tons per capita. So even though it doesn't, it's not a direct emitter, it still has a huge footprint. The next, the next aspect is as climate change becomes ever more real and regulators bear down on the customer base of the insurance market, the insurance market should be supplying risk solutions and advice and help on how to manage both the regulatory risk and the climate risk. And so there's a ton of business opportunity sitting there. Yeah, for sure. Now, it's amazing to me uh, 
uh, you know, and I don't claim to be any expert in this space, but we get to talk to a lot of people a lot of the time, and this whole topic was something which everybody's asking about two years ago because they wanted to know what everyone else was doing, not because they were doing anything about it, because they, but they were curious about it. And last year, you know, there was people starting to recruit, and then this year it has just exploded in the insurance industry into real activity, as anybody understands the... I think the immensity of the role that insurance could play if they are active and they and they fully understand and exploit the extent of those opportunities. So then, where does um, Conduit Re fit in that? Because I see on your LinkedIn profile that you know, as if you've got any time left, you, you're also um, you're also running Conduit Re. What, what's Conduit Re? So Conduit Re is a um, Bermudan-based specialist reinsurance company, and I mean the story behind that. Um, is in 2019, we thought that the opportunity was coming, which happens about once every decade, to start up a brand new legacy-free reinsurer in a hard insurance market. And by hard, I mean rating good. I worked with Trevor Carvey, who I've known since about 1986, and we put a business plan together. We went to the stock market and we raised about 1.1 billion. It's an A minus rated carrier based in Bermuda. It'll write, I don't know, 650 to 700 million a premium this year. I'm chairman. Trevor's the CEO. We have about 40 staff in Bermuda and it's just lovely to be sort of sitting there with a clean balance sheet and a huge business opportunity. So it's, it's nice. It's fun to be back. Yeah, back to your roots, very much so. And what kinds of what kind of business are you looking to write? It's a mixture of property, casualty, specialty, across proportional quota share business and excess of loss. It's um, a diverse portfolio. It's written exclusively to reinsurance brokers. It's a broad-based PNC reinsurance business. Hi. Ben here. I'm the Business Development Manager at Instec. Our next report, Parametric Insurance in 2022, for 150 companies to watch, will be published on the 14th of June. The report will provide an overview of the parametric insurance space, what has changed in the past 12 months, and the opportunities for further innovation. It will be free to Instec members, and we're offering a 50% discount code to non-members who register their interest before the 14th. You can register online at instec.co forward slash parametric. You've just established in the last 20 minutes an extraordinary um, ability to sort of um, pick trends and um, opportunities and invest in them and, and make money. What have you got for us earthlings who, you know, live in a much more um, proximate world as to where the next big opportunities lie? What are you currently cogitating on as an investment opportunity? For me, the opportunities are, A, the digitization of the insurance marketplace data, which in itself allows product innovation. B, the uninsured pool of risk. So if you look at the biggest existential threat to society at the moment, it's probably climate change. And 85% of most natural peril disasters are uninsured. There's a vast pool of risk and there's a need 
and companies are increasingly having problems, balance sheet problems. So that's an opportunity that's six times the size of the current industry. It's probably an opportunity that's bigger than the current balance sheets of the marketplace. An uninsured loss sits either with equity markets or with government, as we saw with a loss like COVID. So the other opportunity is bringing capital markets and even joint ventures with government, but bringing those balance sheets to bear on the insurance marketplace and in improving the quality of our products. So parametric products, products that directly address climate change, um, coverage for things that are currently very hard to buy. So it's those areas, the amount of uninsured risk, the coverage gap, climate change, digitization and smart new products. I'm going to push you on that a bit because I reckon we've been talking about, you know, the nexus of insurance and capital markets also for about 20 years, you know, and it seems an incredibly obvious thing to me. And we've got kind of Alice funds and some areas where, you know, that's working and it's working really well. Is it the capital markets that need persuading or is it insurance that needs persuading? And, and almost, I'm not sure that's even the right question. The question is, how do, how does one get better cooperation and a better, um, overlap between the two markets, do you think? Well, what I would observe, and I think you'd, you'd have seen it in tech, change creeps up on you and it starts happening in little incremental, you know, the, as I say, it's evolution, not revolution. I would, draw people's attention to the fact that the ILS market probably pays 30% of most insurance claims now, um, and the cap bond market alongside that is also huge. So the traditional risk transfer mechanisms are in many cases being substituted by capital market mechanisms already. And, and this is not a few hundred million here and there, this is multi-billion. But for capital markets at large, to turn up. They need structures that they can understand and trade. And at the moment, the traditional insurance products traps capital. Once you've written a risk, you've got a reserve and you've got to have a rating and you've got to be licensed. So there's barriers to entry for broad, whereas most capital markets, they could buy or sell a future on oil in an afternoon and sell it the next morning. They can buy equities as a portfolio and trade them every day of the week. So the structures need to change, but I just think it's inevitable that capital markets will come in. One, because the insurance market needs it because it doesn't have the balance sheet to respond to the challenges. And secondly, because it's a big opportunity with non-correlated risk and capital markets, they end up paying the bill anyway. So they either get involved and charge for the risk or they just sit there uh, we've seen some very big uninsured events, you know, BP and um, with Deepwater Horizon, we saw COVID largely uninsured. And that does hit the balance sheets of either the government or equity markets. No, we're very big supporters of the work that companies like Akinova and, and Vestu from, from Israel are doing because they, they're clearly working hard on one, creating uh, liquidity to, you know, providing the platforms on which this happens, and three, they understand the instruments, and I think there's a big role there, very interesting space. I hesitate to ask this question, given the extraordinary range of the things that you do, but but do you have any time off? And if you do have any time off, what do you do with it? Yeah, I, I have as much time off as I possibly can. And I do, funny thing, I'm a, I do beekeeping, which is 
a bit strange because I'm actually allergic to bee stings. I think my children call that Russian roulette. I love gardening. I love mucking around on golf courses, holidays in Cornwall, music. When I'm working, I'm working. But when I go home to Sussex or Cornwall, I just have a great time. Well, you're certainly very good company. Well, I must mention family and grandchildren. That's the yeah, big, yeah, yeah, you that's, must. That, that, that's the biggest event of the year, and I'll get shot by Nikki if I don't. Yeah, no, you, no, no, no. No, you say all the right things. I'm, I'm, I'm um, preparing for the, um, the wedding of my daughter in a couple of weeks' time, and, and that's um, the protocols associated to making sure you mention all the right people is, you know, absolutely top of the list. I'm paranoid that I'm going to miss somebody out in the whole process. Neil, you're great fun. You always were. This is really a truly fascinating story and a, and a brilliant um, podcast listen. So um, thank you very much for joining us. And, and we look forward to working more with InsureWave. And, and um, we'll be keeping an eye on these uh, little tips that you've given us and over the f- following years and see how they plan out. Really a great pleasure to chat. Robin, you've been a very um, lovely host. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us and delighted you made it this far. Let us know what you're thinking by LinkedIn or email hello at instec.co. And for those of you that hadn't already heard the news, we've changed our name from Instec London to Instec to reflect our global coverage and global clients. Mm-hmm.